Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Rounding the News, our weekly news roundup podcast here at Rounding the Earth. My name is Liam Sturgis, coming at you live from Vancouver, British Columbia. And let's get right into the news, shall we? So just to summarize um, a number of things that have happened uh, in the last week in order to give us a overview of the world. Uh, we unfortunately appear to be in a recession, which has been defined, as I understand it, to be two consecutive quarters of negative growth in the economy. And there's this interesting phenomenon of uh, perceived redefinition of various uh, words to describe such a recession, including the word itself. So this is just showing a very quick Newsweek fact check asking if the White House did indeed change the definition of recession. However, some have suggested rather than a more critical outlook, the White House is instead shifting the goalposts in its economic analysis. And they go on to describe a Reddit uh, post uh, that they argue is not necessarily untrue, but perhaps not representing the full picture, pointing out that it can be politically expedient, uh, at least hypothetically, for the Biden White House to redefine the word recession. But any administration might do that, just as the former Trump administration might now be calling them out on such a redefinition because it's politically uh, expedient for them to do so, considering the election will be coming up again very soon. Now, more economic news. Trudeau spars with farmers on climate plan risking grain output. This is an interesting phenomenon happening worldwide all at the same time. Here in Canada, the government wants to cut fertilizer emissions, but farmers say it could result in less food. Now, this all has to do with the uh, Agenda 2030 United Nations Sustainable Development Goals tool being used now of reducing specifically nitrogen being used as fertilizer and both in the Netherlands and in Canada and beginning in more and more places worldwide. I believe in fact, Sri Lanka may have been one of the nations that implemented this. Uh, there are new reduction goals being set by the government saying that farmers have to use less nitrogen in their fertilizer. And farmers are basically saying, look, if you make us cut, our fertilizer use by 30% because nitrogen is a big part of fertilizer as a whole. We're going to basically, we're going to lose a whole bunch economically. The estimated 10.4 billion Canadian dollars that farmers could lose this decade from the reduced output, but it's also less food for people. So that's important to keep in mind. So there have been some protests. Um, yeah, uh, this is a very valid point. Of course, it will result in less food for us, not the elitists. Very, very valid point, Taz. Moving on, another explanation, this time from the BBC, why Dutch farmers are protesting over emissions cuts. Now, the coverage of this, unfortunately, has painted a picture of violent protests, which, unfortunately, they have been. Uh, it's up for debate as to which side is engaging in the violence. I would uh, say it looks to me like it's primarily the government response. But as you can see, they describe hay bales in flames, manure dumped on highways, blockades at supermarket distribution centers, and demonstrations on politicians' doorsteps. Now, it's impossible to get all of the facts right away. That's why we try to look at different sources of information. Um, but just for the sake of quickly covering this, I would invoke the uh, trucker, the Freedom Convoy 2022 uh, event and the coverage around that. And on first read, this sounds very similar to the fear tactic type uh, coverage 
that was used at the time. So all that to say, I'm I'm not I'm skeptical on its face that it is as bad uh, coming from the farmers uh, in their actions as is being described here. Prime Minister Mark Root describes it as willfully endangering others, damaging our infrastructure and threatening people who help with the cleanup. Obviously, that's not something we want on either side. Uh, violence, threats, these are never these are never good things. I think we can all agree on that. Uh, okay, moving on again. Something very interesting is happening down in Austin, Texas. Sandy Hook, defamation jury told of Alex Jones's massive campaign of lies. Infowars founder, quote, attacked the parents of murdered children by telling audiences shooting in which 26 died was a hoax, court hears. Now, I won't dive into this uh, too much. Uh, needless to say, Alex Jones is a is a divisive figure. Um, he's also, I would say, as a matter of fact, very uh, poorly understood. But that's not me uh, necessarily supporting him. That is to say, this is an incident where the coverage is very much politically motivated. And you may find yourself in agreement with the political motivations, or you may find yourself wondering if there's more to the story. I would argue, uh, just based on what I've seen, there is, in fact, more to the story, at least in terms of the facts that are being omitted or uh, amplified. So the question I have for people is, if it, it, the question I invite uh, viewers to go and research further is, did Alex Jones, in fact, lie and attack the parents of murdered children? Did he, in fact, tell his InfoWars audience that the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting was a hoax? If the answer is yes, then this makes a lot of sense. But I, I wonder uh, what results our viewers will find when they uh, conduct their independent research into this. And I look forward to being told what the answer is. Uh, sympathetic portrayal of Alex Jones rebuked as hypocrisy. This is related to testimony on Alex's side. Daria Karpova testified that the pressure of multiple lawsuits and trials has taken a toll on Jones. He's been stressed out and can't relax even while on vacation, so on, so forth. The reason this is relevant for the state of the world is this is being argued uh, as a case of uh, defamation, while the other side, the defense, argues this is a case of free speech and, to an extent, defamation on the other side. But let's leave that for now. But just to say two things. There's a new documentary, which I have not yet watched. I'm not advocating for the documentary. I, it may or may not uh, contain statements or, or expressions of opinion that I or Rounding the Earth agree with. However, just wanted to let you know that this has come out. Alex's War, a new documentary that is not pro nor anti-Alex Jones, but it, I hear it covers a lot of interesting um, related topics to this current lawsuit. And if you're interested in an alternative, uh, a, a notably, a markedly alternative and admittedly biased alternate viewpoint to the Alex Jones lawsuit, then I recommend vivabarnslaw.locals.com. It is, in fact, a subscription platform, so it is not uh, free to access. This is behind a paywall. But I do recommend, in particular, the live Bourbon with Barnes stream from yesterday, July 28, where uh, Robert Barnes, who has previously uh, represented Alex, in fact, I believe in this case in an earlier stage, um, he uh, is able to provide a bit of an inside look, uh, a perspective of someone who has appeared on Alex Jones' show as a host, uh, has represented him before. I recommend it as the alternative view. Next, I just want to, uh, I want to share this very excellent resource 
Hunton Andrews Kurth has a COVID-19 complaint tracker. And what people might not know is that there are in the United States 16,236 total complaints filed against various bodies related to COVID-19 measures, mandates, so on and so forth. You have categories broken down here, banking and financial services, challenges against foreign sovereigns or non-governmental organizations. Civil rights appears to be the largest one. And you also have consumer cases, contract disputes, education, and then look at that insurance. I wonder what that could be. So that is huntonac.com slash en slash COVID-19 tracker.html. That will be in the show notes after this video is completed. Okay, now moving on to our main story, number one. It's official. The World Health Organization declares the rapidly spreading monkeypox outbreak a global health emergency. It's true. We've been alluding to this possibility over the last couple of weeks. Uh, the World Health Organization convened, I believe, on the 21st, and then two days later declared that, yes, indeed, monkeypox constitutes a public health emergency of international concern. An acronym which I find very appealing. You can sound it out for yourself. The key points from this CNBC news article, the WHO declared monkeypox a emergency. The rare designation means that the WHO now views, interesting wording, the outbreak as a significant enough threat to global health that a coordinated international response is needed. Interestingly, I remind viewers that there is in fact a global pandemic treaty in the works. So it's interesting, the timing of this particular emergency. The WHO last issued a global health emergency in January 2020 in response to the COVID-19 outbreak. Europe is the epicenter of the outbreak. Right now, men who have sex with men in the community are at the highest risk. The WHO chief said the global risk is moderate, but the threat is high in Europe. Now, that sort of contradicts the notion that this is a global health emergency. I understand that once it's covered Europe, I mean, that continent is physically connected to Africa. It's physically connected to Asia and international travel being back in business. Obviously, this will spread very quickly, even if it's currently mostly in Europe. But I would have assumed that the public health emergency of international concern would be declared when it actually had reached the level of a global health threat. Monkeypox is unlikely to disrupt international trade or travel right now, the WHO chief said. It's funny, they said that about COVID as well. In any case, this is the highest level of alert, once again, but it has not yet reached. Okay. So, although the declaration does not impose requirements on national governments, it serves as an urgent call for action. The WHO can only issue guidance and recommendations to its member states, not mandates. Member states are required to report events that pose a threat to global health. So it would appear as though there are, in fact, requirements placed on member nations, just not, you know, guidance that can come from the WHO that they then have to follow. Not until the treaty is signed. Now, what's interesting is a month ago, just about exactly a month prior to this meeting, or this declaration, I should say, the World Health Organization says monkeypox is not a global health emergency right now. 
which again makes sense. There were less cases before. Now there's more cases. The WHO did not activate its highest alert level in response to the global monkeypox outbreak called a public health emergency of international concern. Now, this is something I learned today. Currently, only COVID-19 and polio are considered global health emergencies. Now, obviously, polio is cited, like we mentioned last week, as a particularly important uh, disease to have eradicated, allegedly. And now we have this case that has appeared from a live virus vaccine in New York. But I wasn't aware that there was an ongoing global health emergency related directly to polio. And I learned that, in fact, yes, it is. On May 5th, 2014, the WHO Director General, who, if I'm not mistaken, at the time was Margaret Chan, declared the international spread of polio virus in 2014 a public health emergency of international concern under the international health regulations. Temporary recommendations were made to reduce the international spread of poliovirus and requested the reassessment of this situation every three months, which has continued to occur. And look at that. The 32nd meeting of the emergency committee was held in June 2022, where they decided to extend the emergency. Two points. One, is it really an emergency if you've had to reconvene 32 times? Or is it now just a reality? Second, did anyone know, anyone watching, were you aware there was a, a, a P-H-E-I-C under active order, like happening now for polio? If there's an emergency, it's sort of inherent that everyone would know about it. But this is the other interesting point about this. If... Correct me if I'm wrong. Polio was eradicated, wasn't it? And yes, we've had this new case from a vaccine, which suggests it was not totally, at least all types of polio have not been eradicated. But in 2014 and ever since, it's continued to be a public health emergency. It's very, very interesting to me. I just didn't know this. Now, the public health emergency of international concern, which I will henceforth, for lack of time, refer to as fake, P-H-E-I-C, fake. It's, it's been used more times than I was aware of beyond just polio. The public, this is from Wikipedia, which once again, disclaimer, is not itself a source. It is simply an aggregator of uh, facts that may or may not be the totality of the information or may or may not even be correct. So with that in mind, between 2009 and 2000, and 22. And look at that. I just double clicked to edit it. So that's fun. I'm not going to edit it for the record, but there were seven fake declarations. The 2009 H1N1 or swine flu pandemic, the 2014 polio declaration. There's that. The 2013 to 2016 outbreak of Ebola in Western Africa, the 2015 to 2016 Zika virus epidemic, the 2018 to 20 Kivu Ebola pandemic, the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, and the ongoing 2022 monkeypox outbreak. It's interesting as well seeing pandemic, declaration, outbreak, epidemic, epidemic, pandemic, outbreak. So perhaps the fake declaration does not itself equate to pandemic, which frankly, they don't. Um, 
another interesting fact. Automatically, SARS, smallpox, wild-type poliomyelitis, and any new subtype of human influenza are considered as fakes and thus do not require an IHR decision to declare them as such. A fake is not only confined to infectious diseases, but may cover an emergency caused by exposure to a chemical agent or radioactive material, which would include if a nuclear bomb were to go off, which brings us back to the strange PSA that was put out. Um, I'm going to bring up a couple of comments here from Taz. Thank you very much for engaging, Taz. Rare declaration, laugh out loud. Racism, climate change, gun violence, food insecurity, polio virus, mass violence, mental health, opioid crisis, yada, yada, yada. Everything is a public health emergency now. Yes, indeed, there are cases where racism in particular, I know, following the 2020 George Floyd uh, murder was being discussed at the, certainly at the state level, uh, as being considered a public health emergency, which... Look, you could make an extended argument for why that's the case, but when we're dealing with international or, or national or even state-level powers that are specifically supposed to be related to health, there, there are laws in place for all of these issues that, that don't require leaps of logic or legislative authority to be able to pull off. Polio not eradicated, supposedly smallpox was. So perhaps I'm mistaken on that, but it's my... I suppose what I'm saying is I've always been told as a matter of just general knowledge and certainly in the vaccine discussion, polio in my life has very much been cited along with smallpox as being an illness that was eradicated as a result of mass vaccination. And therefore, illnesses like influenza or SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19 should also Take the same approach. But if polio is not eradicated, then that undermines that argument, at least in this context. So thank you for sharing, Taz. Um, clarification is very much appreciated anytime there's an opportunity to. So the statement of the 32nd Polio IHR Emergency Committee, just clarifying once again, this was renewed. This continued uh, for yet another three-month period. So in July, August, September, the end of September, we shall hear again if the polio emergency shall continue. So to be clear, right now we're dealing with COVID-19, monkeypox, and polio. Indeed, it seems like many emergencies. Now, this is interesting. There are many unanswered questions here. And I want to call a little bit of a, I want to ring a warning bell. I'm not convinced what we're being told. I'm convinced, I believe some people engaging in this discussion on either side of the argument are falling prey to segregatory mm, language or, or concepts that I'm not convinced there's any basis or any reasonable basis to assert. So this headline from NBC News, monkeypox is being driven overwhelmingly by sex between men, major study finds. Now, I don't want to make a huge deal about this, but it's very, and, and I'm not attempting to be political, but the definitions of the word man and woman have been openly litigated in the court of public opinion and under oath in front of the U.S. Senate. as of the last month. And this is why it is important that we have definitions for things that we don't then arbitrarily change. Now, I'm not saying that 
the dis discussions happening surrounding transgender individuals and where they fall, what definitions then apply or don't apply. I, that, that's a separate issue I'm not litigating. Other than to say, we have words that have definitions. And if it is the case, hypothetically, that men here is being treated as a word the same way it's been treated in the public discussion recently outside of this context, then this excludes nobody. And again, I'm not saying, I'm not expressing a, a personal opinion as to whether a transgender person is, is man or woman opposite to what they were born. That's not what I'm litigating. I'm saying these words need to be applied evenly in, in various contexts. Of the 528 confirmed cases reviewed, out of 16,000, by the way, 95% are believed to have transmitted during sex between men, according to a new paper from the New England Journal of Medicine. Which is, the imagery here is interesting. The outbreak, which epidemiologists believe initially began in mid-spring uh, at, seems to be a typo, gatherings of gay and bisexual men in Europe, has since alarmed such experts by ballooning to nearly 16,000 cases worldwide. Now, infectious disease specialists are developing an increasingly refined understanding of the predominant conduits of monkeypox transmission, as well as the typical disease course patterns. Now, I don't doubt this. However, bisexual men, I wonder if that includes then, if you are bisexual man, that implies you're having sex with men and women. So, if it's transmitting primarily between men who have sex with men, but some of those men also have sex with women, they have female partners and male partners, are the female partners being infected? I bring it up because it's not clear to me by what mechanism this would only affect men. I just don't understand it. This doesn't add up to me. And what I'm concerned about is that we are falling prey on both sides of the argument to discussing a specific identifiable group as being the source of the problem and what follows then. It's the same argument as segregating the vaccinated and the unvaccinated or the black and the white or the this religion versus this religion. In the absence of substantive evidence, which I challenge that this is not substantive evidence based on everything else we're seeing, at least not yet. I would caution the, the community at large to not blame any group in particular for what's happening. There is an individual who I won't name who's a very, very influential independent media personality who gen generally I find to be tremendously trustworthy and a unifying voice. But this individual yesterday sounded an awful lot like a, one of the more divisive public health figures saying, come on, guys, let's just stop having gay sex for about a month. Let's tone it down. And to me, that sounds an awful lot like someone advocating for control over someone else's actions. I'm not saying that it would be a bad idea. I'm not saying it would be a good idea. I'm saying we can't lose the plot here. And another question, though, if this is happening overwhelmingly, not entirely, allegedly, but overwhelmingly among men who have sex with men, then why are children 
now being diagnosed with it. Let's go back to this real quick because there was a specific line in particular that I wanted to find here. Well, first of all, no one has died of monkeypox infection outside of Africa during this outbreak. And for many people, the disease is relatively mild and resolves on its own in a few weeks without any need for medical intervention. Okay. Now, there is something I wanted to find here. Where is it? Perhaps it's in a different paper. Well, in any case, what I was trying to find, I had read in one of these articles that the sexual transmission is so overwhelming. It, it essentially does not transmit through touch, which again, here they are saying it does. But the point is, to what degree truly can this be sexually transmitted if these two infants that are unrelated have also gotten it? I don't know what this says. Two cases of monkeypox has been identified have been identified in the U.S., According to the CDC, the two cases are unrelated, probably the result of household transmission. Again, by what mechanism, guys? One case is a toddler who's a resident of California. The other is an infant who is not a U.S. resident, so someone visiting. Public health officials are investigating how they were infected. Both have symptoms. It would be nice to know which symptoms they are, but are in good health and receiving treatment with an antiviral medication named Tisiviramat or Tisiviramat or TPOX, which the CDC recommends for children under the age of eight because they are considered at higher risk from infection. But I thought it was gay men who were, I thought it was men who have sex with men who are at the highest risk of infection. So to me, this is at best misleading or incomplete or, or perhaps irresponsible wording. In any case, there's also concerns about the vaccines being rolled out. The amount of people I've talked to who, who are aware of monkeypox, who are somehow not aware that there is currently a mass vaccination campaign underway, is it's staggering. So few people seem to understand, in, at least in my life, that there is a mass vaccination campaign using a smallpox vaccine. Now, here's what I'm going to do real quick. I'm going to stop the, oh, sorry. I'm going to stop sharing my screen and I'm going to reshare it with audio activated because the amazing Polly, who truly lives up to her title, has covered this quite well. So let's listen. Revolutionary ties and all that. And as I was putting together this video, my friend Sugar Cookie on Twitter, she sent me this video where the World Health Organization says that anyone who receives a monkeypox vaccine is considered to be part of a clinical trial for data collection so that they can learn more about the effectiveness. Yeah, you heard that right. Listen to this. Uh, I, I would like to underline one thing that is very important to WHO. Uh, we do have uncertainties around the effectiveness of these vaccines because they haven't been used in this context and in this scale before. And therefore, that when these vaccines are being delivered, that they are delivered in a context of uh, clinical trial studies and prospectively collecting this data to increase un our understanding on the effectiveness of these vaccines. Thank you. Cases are reported with men who have sex with men. Uh, do you fear that the governments might not take this fake as seriously as the COVID? 
Thank you very much, Jerry. Good question. I guess we'll go to Dr. McGrath. It is important both that it is taken seriously and, and we make collective efforts to support the community affected and the experience that they have had as the most at-risk group, and in this case, it's men who have sex with men. Boom. So, first of all, I have to ask, what if, uh, what if you already got this thing? There have been news stories showing lineups. The point being, this is being delivered in the context of a clinical trial, just as with the COVID-19 vaccines, which the problem is people don't seem to understand that that is the case. Now, moving on, I'm going to very quickly wrap up with a second set of information here, okay? There was a recent Freedom of Information Act disclosure. I'm going to share my screen once again. This is Aaron Siri and Del Bigtree on the high wire, and they have an announcement. Uh, uh, the... Uh... And yes, we we uh, we do a lot of FOIA requests, as you know, for for ICANN. We've got hundreds, probably, before every federal health agency in the United States. <laughs> with that said, they love us. Uh, with I'm that sure. Said, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, they, have, they have they have a picture of you and Dell. I think health agencies have information that could assist in, in further understanding the truth in analyzing an issue. Uh, you know, you we we. We on ICANN's behalf FOIA for that information. Yeah. A number of months ago, there were reports that there are certain lots of the Pfizer back COVID vaccine that had a disproportionate number of reports in theirs regarding death and serious injury. Right. And so we wanted to understand, well, is that meaningful? Right. If uh, knowing that a certain lot has 20 times the number of deaths, in theirs versus other lots is only meaningful if, for example, that lot was only distributed at the same rate as other lots. Right, then it's Obviously, not 20 that, times bigger. If it's 20 times the lot, then that would explain why you're having a higher reaction in theirs. So you need to know how many doses of, were in that lot when it was delivered. Exactly, we have to, we have, to have an understanding of how many doses are in each lot, uh, distributed and, and ideally used, but at least distributed in the United States. So we uh, forwarded for that information on behalf of ICANN, and uh, we're pleased that we have received um, a significant amount of information with regards to So that information has now been released, and I credit Welcome the Eagle 88, my friend and colleague Albert Benavidez, for sharing this condensed version of that stream where they announced this. Now, what this is, is a list of batch and lot numbers as they were distributed in the United States. Okay, I'm just going to share this real quick. You can go and download these for yourself at icandecide.org slash Pfizer dash lot dash dose dash documents slash exclusive Pfizer lot and dose data release. And um, I, I here I'll show you what they look like. They are uh, very. Uh, let's see. There we go. This is what they look like. Okay, they're kind of uh, dense. Um, I don't. Uh, I so look. You've got two columns: the provider pin, which I wonder if that corresponds to a healthcare facility or uh, you know the healthcare practitioner delivering it, and then the lot number. Now I don't think they've given numbers of the doses delivered, but bottom line, go and download those for yourself. 
and I think you will find it to be very enlightening. And please do share what you discover. Now, moving on, we're going to wrap up the show here, informed by this particular set of news. The problem is there are some people who are being very badly hurt and who are dying following the receipt of the COVID-19 vaccines, not just Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, Novavax, Medicago, it's all of them. And I'm not going to claim to have expertise on the topic. However, just to quickly run through, Japan has now granted the first payment for a death related to COVID-19 vaccination. So someone has died, I believe it was a grandmother, yes, 91 when she received the vaccination, who had pre-existing conditions, she then died of a heart attack. But it was it was determined to be as a result of the COVID-19 vaccine, or at least it was likely enough that the, the, the family was awarded a lump sum payment for killing their grandmother. Now, this is in addition to back in, let's see, when was this? Back in June of, oh, August of 2021, 29 people in Japan to receive aid over post-vaccine health issues. So this, this goes even further back, and I get the impression that in Japan, this is mostly just bureaucratic uh, red tape, you know, taking time to go through the system. But this is also quite concerning. Hospitals confirm deaths of four physicians but deny vaccine-related. Attempting to quash social media gossip and speculation, two greater Toronto-area hospitals have confirmed the deaths of four staff doctors during one week in July. I repeat, four doctors died across two hospitals in one week. But deny any connection to the COVID-19 vaccinations. It looks as though there was a bout with cancer for one of them, but they were all very young. And then, seven hours ago, a fifth triathlete, 27, becomes fifth Greater Toronto Area doctor to die in July. This is her, Candace Naiman. Far too young, obviously. And I'm not saying this was directly caused by the COVID vaccine. I'm saying that is way too many young people to die suddenly. I lost a friend recently who was younger than me in her 20s from something that people don't usually die from at this age. It's happening all over. And these need to be addressed. We need to understand why people are dying. It's sort of like the most... It, we should all be very, very concerned about this, is what I'm saying, okay? University of Toronto, though, has announced they're going to mandate booster shots in the fall for people who live in residence, for, for students, for young adults living in residence. I don't understand by what logic they are doing this, but it's happening. On the bright side, well, sorry, moving back, the Globe and Mail, because that first source was the Epoch Times. So for those who want an alternative source, University of Toronto requiring students and staff living in residence to be triple vaccinated against COVID-19. They had stopped requiring proof of vaccination for attending classes on May 1st. So this is a fairly quick, kind of as expected, a return to these requirements. Now, hopefully, this will not last as long as the L.A. County mask mandate did. This was July 27th. L.A. County could be days away from a mask mandate. These cities won't enforce it. It turns out several cities, Pasadena, Long Beach, and Beverly Hills, have all come out against a new mask mandate. I'm 
very pleasantly surprised to see that. And look at this. It worked. L.A. County presses pause button on mask mandate. Oh, and it's breaking. So protest worked in this case. These areas, these counties did or these cities did not want this mask mandate to come back. I would argue they probably have very scientifically sound reason to object. But the point is, returning to this initial uh, this initial complaint tracker here, people are objecting to things that they believe are not right in their life. Various COVID-19 actions have impacted people in ways that are more harm than good. So we need to be looking at, obviously, positive health actions. And we're here covering the news. So my point is to show you the news is people are objecting in the court of law as well as the court of public opinion. So this has been another very fun episode. Thank you so much for supporting Rounding the News and beyond Rounding the News, our larger Rounding the Earth series, which is primarily based around the Rounding the Earth newsletter on Substack. The best way to support the show is to become a paid subscriber to the Rounding the Earth newsletter. It's very affordable, fantastic content on a variety of topics, including COVID-19, the economy, Bitcoin, and various other social and economic issues. You can do that. The second best way to support the show is on these live streams as you're watching every week, you can leave a rumble rant, which is a paid comment that allows you to attach a tip and we would appreciate your financial support very much. It allows us to keep doing the show and allows us to introduce more content uh, in formats that we have not even yet officially announced. But speaking of official announcement, I will see you on Tuesday for a roundtable discussion with Dr. Stephen Pellick and Dr. James Lyons-Weiler, where we will be discussing natural and vaccine-acquired immunity from SARS-CoV-2 and the vaccines. Thank you very much for watching. I have been Liam Sturgis. You can find me at, at the Liam Sturgis on Twitter or at www.liamsturgis.com, where I've got some pretty cool music up. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. We will see you again on Tuesday.